Uh So we're looking at Matthew. Uh, The beginning of the book of Matthew has taken us through a genealogy uh, to help us see right from the beginning that this baby being born, this is the Messiah from the line of David, the one that the Jews, as well as some outliers, have been waiting for. Why does he want to prove that? Well, because if you step back for a minute, the idea of a baby being born in a tiny town to unknowns in scandalous conditions And being the promised one, well, that's absurd. You need some proof to back it up. And Matthew doesn't waste any time. He goes straight to the family heritage to show that there is a line going back from David down to Jesus. Not linear and not uncomplicated, but it's there. At the end of the first chapter, we see Joseph calling this baby Jesus. Yahweh saves which is putting a fair bit of pressure on this kid because it's not just a declaration, but it's this child's identity. Yahweh saves. God with us. Yahweh saves. So this is where we are as we go into chapter 2. However, have you ever noticed how uh, what we listen to or what we surround ourselves with can shape us and how we do this to each other? We three kings from Orient are, bearing gifts we travel afar, feudal and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Most of us would recognise that carol, and maybe it's one of the first things that comes to mind as we read this passage about the visitors coming from the east. Music is a fantastic gift from God that enables us to express, process, and even dream of what could be, potentially shaping our ideas of truth and history. Paintings, pictures and displays can do this too. They can shape our ideas. We're going to have a look. Oh, there we go. Lovely. Thank you. Um, So these are some different pictures or paintings um, of the birth of Jesus. So here we have the Adoration of the Shepherds by Georges de la Tour. And... Oh, wrong way. I might just get, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Uh, This is God is with us by Hannah Versi. And then we have the Nativity by Joseph Malamba Mandagi. And the birth of Jesus Christ by Wunbu Kim Ki Chang. Now they're all different, yeah? If we grew up with any one of these pictures put predominantly on view each Christmas time, It has the power to shape our conception of what this historical moment looked like. And that's the wonderful thing about art. And the rest of our culture does that too. Not just the language that we speak, but the way we use those words and the body language and the habits that go along with them, they shape us and the way we view ourselves, each other and God, everything. Which can be both a gift and a curse. So let's start off by acknowledging that we come to this with preconceived assumptions as we look at the text. Maybe see if we can put them aside for a minute to see um, what is actually written here and that the truths of who God is and ourselves that we see in the text shape us and not what we think is already there. So let's look at the beginning of uh, the section that we looked at, at Matthew. So we're in Matthew, beginning of the New Testament, chapter 2. Thank you, Bob, for reading it for us before. Uh, It's verse 1 to 15. I'll just read verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. 
About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Some wise men, not three, maybe 12, we don't know. But they caused enough of a stir that it deeply disturbed both Herod and all of Jerusalem. Now, scholars concur that it was probably more than three, and we've ended up with three because of the gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Also, they probably wouldn't have been at the birth of Jesus, despite many nativity scenes and paintings telling us this. Traditionally, their visiting is marked at the, end of the, fe- uh, sorry, at the Feast of Epiphany at the end of the 12 days of Christmas, which is around January 6th. But honestly, neither of these things we can know for sure when they turned up or how many there were. And that's okay, because there is so much others, there is plenty more that we can know for sure. And it is so much more deep and profound than numbers and dates. So these wise men, actually called Magi or visitors from the east, um, so they may have been women as well, were likely from Babylon. They were likely astrologers, potentially magicians. But this is who they were not. They were not Jews. They were not worshipping Yahweh. They looked to the stars and the planets for meaning. So just to be clear, visitors from the east... They were foreigners, whatever their number and whatever their timing and arrival, they were not looking for the Jesus that we know. But they were looking. They were looking for a king, proactively and intentionally looking. Really, it's understandable that these visitors have been given the label wise. It takes a lot of humility and curiosity to be open to new information and different ways of thinking, hearing other people's stories, Later on in the Gospels, we see Jesus displaying both of these characteristics on tap, humility and curiosity. Because the the Magi could have very well decided that they didn't need a king to worship or that they were going to go out alone as a group and find this potential king themselves. But they have the humility and the curiosity to stop and ask, listen to the answer. And act on that advice. How incredibly humble and curious. It was just a shame, though, that they asked the king of the Jews, the current king of the Jews. He was already pretty paranoid about losing his power. Herod. King Herod. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book or seen a play where the so-called bad guy just really lives up to their name? Completely deranged, drunk on power, immeasurably needy. This is how King Herod can come across as we read this text. A newborn king of the Jews? Where is he? I want to worship him too. Like, yeah, he asks questions, but you can sense that it's from a position of being very concerned about him losing anything that he has, particularly his power. And when the visitors from the east don't return to let him know the details... He completely lets loose and orders that all the boys in Jerusalem to and under are to be killed. Abhorrent. As a side note, that's a callback to Exodus, where we see a similar decree from the one in power. Have a read of uh, Exodus and have a read of Matthew. uh, And there might be some correlations there, just for kicks. Did you know Herod was a Jew? King Herod grew up as a Jew. So he deeply knew the stories of how Yahweh had made a commitment to his people. How despite 
Israel forgetting again and again and being enslaved and going through famine, everything. The faith in Yahweh in these people still ran deep. It was this story. It was their story and it was part of Herod. Another part of Herod's story was Roman politics. He saw his father amass large amounts of money through the spice trade and he saw that being in politics was helpful for that and that politics can turn people on a dime. Herod saw his father pledge allegiance to one leader only for him to switch because the original leader ended up being literally stabbed in the back. Herod was part faith, part politics, and the politics won. In his mind, it had to. Thanks in part to family fortune, he had a crazy, and I mean crazy, amount of money. More than Elon Musk, more than Bill Gates, arguably the richest man in the world ever. The kind of rich that means if you want a house on a mountain, you pick the spot, you build the mountain, and then you build the house. Seriously. The kind of wealth you can name anything, and at the drop of the fanciest hat, it will be done. Rome had declared him king of the Jews. You've got to hold tightly to that kind of wealth and power, don't you? Because what if you lose it? What then? Disappoint your father who gave you all this, end up a nobody in the streets? So when these outsiders trundle in declaring that they are looking for the newborn king of the Jews, you hustle. Your heart rate goes up. Your paranoia spirals. Management control kicks in. Get this sorted. Stay in control. And then there's Jesus. This little baby, helpless, declared to be the Messiah, was born in a place that he did not own, his parents didn't own in circumstances that led him to be a refugee before he could talk, defend himself or give orders. What a contrast. Can you see it? It's the tale of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms, very different. We're going to dig into kingdoms today. What is this kingdom thing anyway? Later on in Matthew, we read Jesus himself declaring, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's clearly very important to Jesus that we recognise that when we try and do things our way, it does damage, potential damage to ourselves, damage to others, uh, creation. And of course, it impacts God too, to see us doing all these things. I wonder, is it a little like seeing your friend or your child or your sibling in a harmful relationship, whether it's with a person or a substance, you know that they would be much better off if they could just see what else is on offer. Jesus is proclaiming, I want you, to, I want to offer you freedom from all those mistakes, bad decisions and harm. I forgive you. But wait, there is more. I want to restore you into what my intentional plans were for you, starting now. I want to give you new eyes to see what could be on earth and join me in making that happen now. We don't just accept Jesus' forgiveness, potentially tell others about him and wait to die so we can go to heaven. We get to join God in restoring his people, his creation, bit by bit, now. In his power and strength, now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew is trying to yell at us, don't miss this. He is writing to fellow followers of God. Do not miss this. 
lift your eyes from the text and see what the pagan stargazers recognised that the prosperous, connected Jew did not. This God is different. His kingdom is different. And we get to join him. History paints Herod as quite a caricature, right? Someone with this out-of-this-world wealth that has the paranoia to match it. But he was human, like us. So while his life was so far removed from ours in time, geography, power and wealth, we had something in common with him. We are human. And humans have the freedom and the capacity to decide what they want to give currency to, what they want to give weight and worth behind, what we want to stand for and fight for. So let's get curious and wonder what the driving forces of these two kingdoms are. Herod's kingdom, where people are used and suppressed. Harsh, but I think a fair call of how Herod views humans. How can they serve him? What can he gain from knowing them? All the interactions that Herod has in this chapter with the visitors, with the priests and the teachers, and later on with the soldiers... It's all with the aim of further securing his position and his power. And Jesus' kingdom, even as Jesus is being born an infant without speaking, we can see the narrative that his kingdom is one of generosity and invitation, inviting these foreigners, not of Israel, not following God at this point, but these magicians, potentially intrigued by some words that a guy called Balaam said a long time ago, or maybe a completely different source, leading them to an insecure Herod who gave them information through writings from a prophet that was originally about David, not Jesus. And they were invited to find this God. No pressure, no coercion, very roundabout, but inherently invitational. And let's not forget what the invitation is like. When these visitors arrive to see Jesus, they don't need to prove their worth. They aren't asked how they knew or if anything has changed since they started their journey. There weren't any loopholes or red tape or purification ceremonies needed for them to visit this Messiah as a baby and worship him. No questions asked, open-handed invitation. Jesus' kingdom is invitational. And one of generosity. Feel free to read with me in verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. I could also read, They entered the house and saw the child with his mother. They bowed down and worshipped him. Or maybe this version, They entered the house and saw the child. They bowed down and worshipped him. See how you could omit Mary's name and the verse would still make it clear that this is Jesus, the one to be worshipped. But because Matthew is a follower of Jesus and learning his kingdom ways and priorities, he names her, not forgotten or ignored, not called Jesus' mother, but Mary. No doubt tired, potentially scared and concerned teenage mother recorded by name because our God is one who generously acknowledges those who are seen as small and vulnerable in Herod's eyes. Jesus' kingdom with wild generosity, acknowledge and invites the least of us. So if Herod's kingdom is one where um, people are used and suppressed, what is the potential motivation behind that? I would suggest fear and control. Fear of losing what he has, control of how others perceive him. If he loses what he has, 
There goes his status and security. If he loses control of how others perceive him, what is left of his identity? Who is he if people don't look up to him and admire him? He makes the orders that he needs to to make it clear to everyone within Kui that he is in charge, he calls the shots, and people are going to do what he says. Jesus' motivation behind the invitations? Relationship. We are focused here in the beginning of Matthew, but there is a strong narrative throughout all the other books in this collection that we call the Bible that our God is relational. Now think about it. If you want to rule a kingdom, do you spend time getting to know people? Or maybe at the beginning to schmooze your way into power, but that's very task-oriented. Our God, he creates people. Not just so that he gets to know us, but so that we get to know him. Or lean in, uh, yeah, but he doesn't force us to know him either or lean into him. He dignifies us with a choice. Unconventional. And that God just doesn't take interest in what we do, but why we do it and who we are. We are given the space, if we want to take it, to express every fear, concern, joy, doubt, elation, confusion with God. And he cares and he remembers and he responds. So we have these two kingdoms. Herod's of fear and control where people are used and suppressed. And Jesus' kingdom, the one where Jesus shows us, even as a baby, that it is relational, where people are invited with generosity. The one where you work and you build and you save and you negotiate and you politicise and you grab and you hold and you fear. You never know what's coming around the corner and you can never trust anyone because you never know what's going to happen. Your loyal servants could turn on you. It takes a lot to prove to be yourself to be loyal here in Herod's kingdom. And one where well, you're secure enough in your relationship that despite the possibility, uh, despite the possible havoc of illness, starvation, insecurity, jealousy, you see the worth in coming to earth as a baby. Without armed guards, without the backup of wealth, without the heritage of coming from the right place or knowing the right people, he comes as he is to meet us as we are. You don't have to work your way in. You are given the invitation. Vulnerable but not weak. Jesus' kingdom. So, which kingdom do you live in? Trick question. Herods. We live in a world that is driven by motives that lift up some but suppress others. We are shaped by a culture that is quick to make us seek control and fear whatever gets in the way of that. But there's another question. Which kingdom will you live for? Which kingdom's values will motivate um, your decisions and your priorities? The big decisions, the little ones, the decisions you make in public and in private and how you justify things. We need to understand as we choose which kingdom we are going to live for, because it is a choice on offer, it means that we aren't just committing ourselves to that kingdom's values and purpose. To be part of that kingdom means submitting to the leader of that kingdom. Jesus, God and the Holy Spirit, or Herod. And I think this is where it gets tricky, right? Like, do you remember being a kid? There's some young ones here who probably do. But I am the oldest of two siblings. My brother is five years younger than me. 
which really means nothing now because he's taller than me and he regularly reminds me of that, that I'm the shortest in my family of origin. But when we were kids, um, there would often be a gap between when my brother and I got home from school and when my parents got home from work. And in that gap, I was in charge because I was the eldest and I was trustworthy. Now, sometimes my brother would listen to me, sometimes he wouldn't. Because despite being five years older than him, I wasn't the parent. You might be familiar with a scenario where a child or teenage siblings or even adults were trying to tell each other what to do, maybe even midway through a parent giving very similar instructions. I've often found myself saying, please, let me be the parent. Any one sibling could think that they have the right way or the answer for any given scenario and want to dish out that wisdom post-haste and declare that they know what the parent is going to say anyway, so why can't they just say it? But for the sake of healthier relationships in that family, isn't it far better for that sibling to be quiet so that the parent can be heard and give their wisdom and advice, probably in a far more gracious tone? Church family, if we want to take up this invitation of being partners with God in bringing heaven to earth, part of that is letting God be the parent, submitting to his rule, not just with our own lives, but trusting that he cares enough about our siblings next to us who, as far as we might be concerned, just don't quite get it. Do you hear me on that? I haven't got God figured out, just like the rest of my siblings. So I'm more than happy to be part of a gracious discussion about how this could be wrong, but I don't see anywhere in the Bible that we are asked to be bouncers to God's kingdom. We are invited to repent and follow and join, but not protect it. Jesus came as a baby, so if his plans were ever going to be thwarted, it would be then, right? Please hear the nuance in this. We are called to protect and provide for the sick, the vulnerable and the hurt, but... There is a very distinct difference between protecting those that are created by God and protecting God. And we can ask questions. Like I I mentioned earlier, our God is one of curiosity, but it comes with humility. In a culture that promotes and parades intellectual um, assent, but sorry, we live in a culture that promotes and parades intellectual assent, but to find security there, to think that knowledge is the foundation of faith, Well, that's Herod's kingdom, not God's. You don't have to have all the answers or even share all the answers you think you might have to be a faithful follower of Jesus or to make someone else a faithful follower of Jesus. Are we more passionate about making sure that we're going to the right denomination or listening to the right preachers or muscling our influence to make sure church looks a certain way that we are comfortable with and at times that we'd prefer looking for peace through control? Or are we trusting that this God will look after both his kingdom and the people in it? This God that was born as a baby under the rule of a deranged king who set out to murder him, he survived being a refugee and living his life under uh, under oppression. He was crucified for what he lived and taught, but then he rose again kept teaching, then ascended into heaven, and 2,000 years later, there are still innumerable people choosing to follow him and call him Lord. Really? Let's stop thinking that Herod's, let, let us stop thinking 
um, sorry, let us stop letting Herod's kingdom into our heads and thinking that we need to help control what God's kingdom looks like or who gets to be invited. But maybe you aren't consciously or subconsciously trying to be the parent. Good for you. Maybe you are looking to control the food bill or the mortgage or the rent or the electricity bill or coming up to Christmas, the present list. None of these things are bad things to be thinking wisely about and they are real pressures. And honestly, sharing these struggles might be a way for us as a church, either as a group or individuals, to give a glimpse of heaven in helping each other with these hardships. And do you see that? That when we share our needs, tangible, relationship, uh, relational and spiritual, both with God and our siblings, we get the opportunity to be the answer to each other's prayers, bringing heaven to earth. Not so every need is met, because it won't be, but so that we can remember that we are loved by our God. And so we are able to focus on looking for other ways to bring heaven to earth for others. But when we see those pressures, like buying a house or even keeping a house or making memories or creating opportunities, presenting a persona, when we allow those things to take up enough headspace, enough energy and resources that this kingdom of God becomes secondary or lower, we are choosing not just to live in, but live for Herod's kingdom. We are living in a way that is seeking control or fearing the loss of it. And look, honestly, no judgment here. Jesus gives us a choice. There's no coercion. This isn't an us versus them, Herod versus God kingdom. We all get a choice. Let us regularly, individually, and as a church, step back and look at what our priorities are and how they drive our decisions. Relational, or power and fear. Call it for what it is. And if we want to take the opportunity to partner with God, literally to make this world a better place, we can wrestle with what that might look like together. Maybe it is something through something organised that you might see at the ministry fair after the service. Maybe it's sacrificing your lifestyle or one that you have or one that you are trying to attain so that you have the ability to be relationally present to your neighbours or your kids or your spouse or those that are a bit more complicated. Or maybe to have the space to ask the deeper questions, what could it look like for heaven to come to earth in Springwood and the surrounds? Because we have a choice, not just to be forgiven, but to bring heaven to earth. And if we trust God that he is the king of that kingdom, it gives us the freedom to focus on that, to work together and let go of the control and the fear. Let us do the good work that has been planned for us in partnering with God, our ruler, who wants to restore and heal his creation, unconventionally, for his glory and for our joy. Shall we pray? God, who searches hearts, we open ours to you. You long to live in us, to heal, to liberate and love us. You are also kind and gentle and you wait for our consent. Holy Spirit, help us to live an open life, willing to be seen and known, willing to be challenged and freed, unafraid of love. Your kingdom come.
and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.